Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Welcome, welcome. Howdy, Becky. We're excited. Oh my gosh. We've been counting down the moments for this interview. So we talked about this guest before we ever launched our first episode, yeah. like as someone that we would like to get, an the ungettable, ungettable get. get list. And so today we are so blessed and humbled to bring on Kashana Palmer. And you're probably mm-hmm. saying... Well, some people may know her, but who is Kashana Palmer? And she is a living legend. And let me like give a little bio on her. Mm-hmm. Not only is she a national speaker, a trainer and a coach with 17 years in fundraising, marketing, and talent management, but she founded the Rooted Collaborative, which is like this global online community for women of color in fundraising, which we are going to dive into that. And I'm so excited to explore it a little bit more. She's also the author of a really amazing book called Hey, I'm New Here. <laughs> <laughs> which I love that that title. Um, she's about to launch a podcast um, in January called A Shot of Vitamin K. She's CFRE. Um, she's a board source certified governance trainer. Didn't even know that was a thing. And at the at the end of the day, she's just somebody who that you go to when you want to help grow, find, and repair tain people on your team. So she knows all about raising money. She calls herself the philanthropic fairy godmother <laughs> that she that people yeah, need to have on speed dial. <laughs> and her work really just isn't limited to organizations. She's also um, coaches social good professionals and she's just finding ways to put more kindness and goodness into the world. She has got so much energy. Her lipstick is on point. <laughs> and I want to welcome our New York City girl from the Outer Banks of Queens to the podcast. Welcome, Kashana. Hey, hey. Come on, come on, Becky. That was an introduction. (laughs) Girl, I just read what you gave us and it was amazing. (laughs) I I really do need to update that darn thing. So uh, give us a little bit of background on on your story. Um, We always like to give people a chance to shout out to their alma mater and tell us how you got into fundraising and nonprofit. Absolutely. So I am, I think it's important for folks to know, I'm first-gen American. Um, My family is from Jamaica, West Indies. And y'all, I didn't even know I was American until I went to college. Oh my God. (laughs) I think we need that story. Yeah, what is that story? We need that story before we go any further. I mean, so, you know, when you grow up from in an island um, or even from a place that you have an accent coming into the U.S., there's just certain words that you pronounce differently. Um, and so one of those words is what we would now say comfortable. Mm-hmm. But growing up, I would say comfortable. And I would oh, also say I like that better. As opposed to vegetable and so forth and so on. And so I went to, when I went to college, I went to Bentley, then college, now Bentley University up in Waltham, Massachusetts. And I remember being in that cafeteria with lots of other first years, just talking about where we were from. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm Jamaican, da, da, da. And they were like, oh, what part of Jamaica were you born in? And nobody ever asked me that in New York City. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I was born in Queens. And they were like, you're not Jamaican, you're American. 
And I was like, what? And I was like, absolutely not. It was the first time that I had like sort of been introduced that you can um, be culturally one thing, even if you're from someplace else. And it was one of the first times that I was introduced to the notion that as a black woman, y'all know I'm black, right? So I have to ask sometimes. I'm like, sometimes I'm, only, I'm people's only black friend. I just want you to know. No, so, we want you to be in our massive tribe of multicultural, diverse family. Yes, yeah, we want. Bring all the tides into the storehouse. That's it. So, you know, the reality is that a lot of times when you're thinking about identity, it's really important to kind of name how you see yourself and how you sort of show up in the world because it does actually shape your values. So I went to undergraduate for business school. I got my MBA right out of undergrad. Um, I worked in investment banking briefly. Um, over in London. And I came home, y'all, because my goal in life was to be married with children. Mm. I think there's a TV show about that. I mean, and so I I did that too. Um, (laughs) But I came back home and decided that I didn't want to work on Wall Street. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually don't even really remember applying for my first nonprofit job. Even to this day, I'm always like, God, what number job was that? 1,600 and okay. And so I was a grant writer and I did not know that during my final interview, the team made a bet on how long I would last at that organization in that role. Not cool. Ouch. Could they have let me in on the bet? Because I like to win. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I didn't know that until I left three and a half years later, but. Um, needless to say, no one won that bet because no one bet on me for that long uh, because they were like, what is she doing here? But I realized very early on in my career, one, I was not meant to be sitting at a desk writing anybody's any grant, um, but it is how I cut my teeth in understanding how to use narrative to be able to get folks to believe. Um, and I had always been a really good writer, but I think that being able to translate that to a very specific type of business writing was so critical really, really early on. And so I was able to marry my ability to write with my love of people. Y'all, I'm newsy. I'm not even nosy. I'm newsy. (laughs) And so, and my ability to get out and get people to trust me to help executive directors at this huge decentralized agency I used to work for really go from, oh my gosh, how am I going to make sure that Becky and that Julie are not losing their job? Therefore, I need to find money and think about what are the outcomes that I'm really seeking to achieve in this community and that I have a team that's amazing that can get that done? Like just really thinking about impact from a different perspective as opposed to from an output perspective and getting folks to flip their books from being in the red, constantly chasing their next grant to really thinking proactively about how to leverage their mission, their impact positioning in their community to be able to do some real good. And that's how I came into fundraising, y'all. I didn't know there was a thing. I've always raised money. In fact, my nickname in junior high school is Cash Diggy. And to this day, <laughs> listen, I was, listen, I was selling math tests and study homework swap-offs and all the non-cool kids in the class I was in, because I was a cool nerd, y'all, straight-A student, I want you to know, who couldn't get any play. I was able to transition them to the play portion of the program through my program of exchange for work. Now, don't tell my junior high school teachers, they'd be very sad. But that <laughs> is how I making money before I started working um, in high school. And so to this day, Cash Rules Everything Around Me by Wu-Tang is my fight song. Cash Diggy. We are no longer going to call Kishana 
Kayshana, on this interview. She's no longer KP. She is Cash Diggy right here, innovating, being an entrepreneur while still maintaining her grades. Good on you. I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> There's so, so many know, things. For me, mm-hmm. No, keep for going. Me, it was just really about like, connecting with folks, right? Like mm-hmm. just how you and I are talking today, I just found that ultimately many of us want to do do good. We don't quite know how that shows up in our regular everyday life. Some of us instinctively, some of us by habit, but by and large, we want to be seen and we want to be heard and we want to be in some version of a community. And I did not know that then at 22, but I know it now. Who's the season in the crock pot of life? <laughs> you know, my skin looks very clear. If you haven't seen me go on my Instagram, y'all will see I have good skin care. Hey, they can get on YouTube and watch you right now live. Check us out. <laughs> I didn't know. Oh, my gosh. Don't tell my mother. And so, you know, I didn't know then that, that those themes would translate to now. So that's really how I got into nonprofit work and into my work. Um, as a career fundraiser and marketer, and I haven't looked back. Okay, there's a lot of jumping off points, but one thing I want to lift because we talk about this, and I don't think a lot enough people talk about this. But you said you wanted to use narrative to get people to believe, and yep. to us, that is the game changer because you're trying to get believers. You're not trying to just get a couple bucks or even a lot of bucks. You want people that like actually believe so wholeheartedly that they're going to do a lot more than just write you a check. They're going to unlock their community to the cause and to whatever. So I love that. So thank you for that. Thank you for being a champion of that. And I also (laughs) just love this strategic partnership you have with development, that it's just not just looking through the lens of one event or one thing, but you are trying to go and build, you know, pipelines for people. And I think that you're looking at it in such a strategic way. So I just think you're really, really awesome leadership guidance there. So can we talk a little bit about leadership? Um, I know this is a space that you serve hugely in maybe just talk about what transformational leadership looks like and how you kind of coach folks to that. So I think, you know, for me, transformational leadership has, has shifted in my mind and particularly in this last year. And so, you know, when I first started doing leadership work, it was real textbook y'all. It was about theory. It was about frameworks. And then I realized sort of like when you haven't eaten all day and you have like a Snickers moment where you're hangry, like (laughs) really need to understand is how do I, respond, not react. And how do I get in the game when I'm hangry? Like that when we're in moment, when we are stressed, when we have so many things going on. And so all of my theories are pressure tested in two ways. So two years ago, just about my ceiling in my office as y'all looking at fell in. Mm. So I was on site at a client's uh, meeting and my daughter calls me and says, and she's blowing my phone up and she knows I'm on this meeting. It's on her calendar. So I was like, I'm excuse me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I have to step out friends. I'll be right back. And she's like, mommy, you need to come home because the ceiling it's raining in, in your office. Oh, like a and literal, I, like, I thought this is a metaphor. Your ceiling oh, no, no. fell. The okay. ceiling fell in, Holy in the God. office. If the pipe burst in the middle of winter and it rained in my office, here's the thing. That week, I had decided to go through all of my old like backup drives and all of my digital files because I was creating some new coursework, et cetera, y'all. And I left it on my desk that morning. (gasps) I want you to know that when all at that point of the 15 plus years of my professional career was gone, all of the paper, all of the digital files, all of my hardware immersed in water. It, und- it, you just come undone in a way 
that you aren't even ready for because there is no retrieving and, and capturing that. So if I was faking and fronting at this particular juncture, I would have just, just sold it up, said goodnight and went and gone and got a job because the reality is I would not be able to do what I do. And so for that moment, I the transformation in terms of leadership automatically opened me up to beginner's mind. I had to become a student of the game while I was teaching in the game. And so one of the things that is really important to me around my leadership philosophy now is that you have got to be present in the game. Lots of us are amazing individual contributors, which is how people typically get promoted, right? You do a really good job. You kill the game. You are so awesome. You bring all this money. You do transformational programming, whichever lane in our in our sector you're in, and you move up. There's some other stuff that goes on too in terms of you know structural racism, but we're not gonna talk about that right now. So let's say that that's what we do. But what if you're just good at your craft, but you're not actually good at teaching, guiding, coaching, and being in alignment and community with others around that same functional job? What if you are a little bit of a douche? <laughs> how, many, how many of us have worked with folks who we, we're like, if I could, I wouldn't throw you, I couldn't, mm, you can't even finish a sentence. <laughs> you're like, me, 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 right? But if they produce, you've had managers who've said, well, I know he or she is a mess, but they produce. A lot of times those folks get promoted. Talk. And so for me, being able to talk about transformation means being able to be self-aware enough, be vulnerable enough, be present enough in where you are in this stage in your life so that you can lead from a place of a beginner's mind, of learning, of being able to be open to walk alongside your team and to be courageous enough to cast vision with such specificity that folks are like, well, you know, listen, I don't know what is happening on the other side of that door, but whatever John says, we are going, we got to go. Yeah. And so that to me has been sort of like my evolved working practice of transformational leadership, not even so much of a definition. I probably should work on a, a real definition, you know, Becky and John, I should. But, <laughs> the, but the practice. I love this though. You're. And I, it's so spot on. And it's really interesting that you correlate it to that pipe bursting because that, I mean, it is like the ceiling collapse, but it's also, I mean, again, back to your point, John, it does seem like a metaphor where you had to figure out like where your resiliency was to pick yourself back up and reinvent yourself. And I love this conversation around self-awareness. John knows that I have been a geek about self-awareness for decades. And I mean, I was going to even write a blog about like where people could <laughs> come and get tips about how to be self-aware. But the thing that I've learned is I'm kind of, um, what did you say? As I'm simmering in the crock pot now, a little <laughs> bit older, uh, I, I'm learning that you, you cannot be someone who, um, subscribes to self-awareness if you're not willing to go in with humility and you're not willing to listen and you're not willing to humble your yourself to hear feedback about what you're doing that rubs someone the wrong way. Um, I mean, the person that you're talking about, that everyone that's listening right now is picturing someone they work with that is a hot, hot mess. And 
we don't want to work with those people and they should not be exempt from from their behavior because they're producing. And I think just being in a space where we work with missions, we work with really great causes, we got to push that aside and put the mission so much um, more forefront because those kind of people are going to make the environment so toxic. They're going to drag us down and away from what we're trying to do. And it's just not unifying. So I, I really appreciate that you said that. And I want to get into this diversity, um, like within teams and development professionals, but I feel like you have a really interesting story and I, and I want to go there today. Of course I do. John's like, of course you're going to go there. there. You always go there. (laughs) Um, but I want to talk about just the lack of diversity in the development profession. I want to talk about your experiences because you have, you left, um, the development world. And I, and I hope that, you know, you feel safe enough to talk about why and what we can learn from that. Absolutely. So I think there are a couple things that happen. So one, um, there we all know there are different types of development you can pursue in our profession. And so the lane that I spent most of my career career in was in social venture. And so those are those fast growth organizations. They seem to spring up overnight. They have widespread impact as their goal, red replication. And so on day one, they have zero dollars. And on day 100, they have 200,000. And in year one, they have $3 million. And then they're doing a $20 million growth campaign. And when you raise money at that type of clip, you don't really learn like the art of cultivation, of building relationships, because you are literally a hot rod on a track going Mm -hmm. as fast as you can. And if you don't have that team, and I, I learned about all about NASCAR when I lived in Charlotte and I had a board member who was, um, who worked for NASCAR. And so we used to do a lot of big events. And so I used to watch with fascination when the pit crews would get in there and could change out those tires in under a minute. And if you did not have a perfectly synced crew who understood how to make that happen, you as a driver were not gonna be able to have a chance at winning that race. Well, being an only in an organization is like having a badass driver, a fly and capable car and a meh pit crew. Doesn't work. It doesn't work because you actually don't have the support or the confidence in your pit crew Mm -hmm. to be able to pull in, get your maintenance and pull back out on the track. And so imagine if you're going at that clip all the time, but you don't pull off. What ends up happening is you burn out. Mm -hmm. And so what I began to see over time were a couple of things. One, I'm in a unique position because I entered into the C-suite pretty early in my career, about five years in. And so I've been a chief development officer, a chief advancement officer, a chief external affairs officer for national organizations just about my whole career. And so when you are on the executive team, pretty much your whole career, you have a different purview into the entire organization, which is why I'm obsessed with leadership now. And one of the things I saw was that when we had black and brown candidates come in to interview, and I'm going to be very specific since y'all asked me to go there, I'm going to go. Go, go girl. Come into the interview process. Solid was not a word that we could use. It had to be exceptional. There was a conversation or a question about somebody's resume, about their pedigree. Oh, they forgot an S. Oh, they left off a comma. I'm not sure they have the right kind of executive presence. What does that mean anyway? It was always, I liken it to online dating. Mm -hmm. 
versus in-person dating. I'll give you, go with me on this one, y'all. <laughs> when you meet folks in person, socially or for potential love relationships, and you meet them at a social gathering, you're looking for a way to opt in. How do we connect? What do we have in common? How do we continue this conversation? Online, I had to learn this in my 30s, y'all. This is terrible. You're looking for ways to opt out. I don't yeah. like it. Too tall, too slim, too this, too that. Got moves. That's a bad bod. What, what, what do you mean? Why are you looking like a serial killer? Like you have all types <laughs> of things that you're using to opt out. And so in these interview processes I would have, even though I am a Black woman sitting on a leadership team, I found myself sliding into the same foolishness of the opt-out. Because we had not actually created conditions for Black and Brown professionals to persist and to excel in our organizations. Simple things like how our payments and our salaries were set up, specifically, if you start on October 1 and your pay cycles on the 15th and the last day of the month, and it's for the previous two weeks, if you're a new employee starting October 1, you're not getting a paycheck until October 30th. And so everybody is not set up to put their rent and everything else on a credit card. So inequities would persist in our practices and our policies, and then they would just bubble up and show up in our hiring. A second thing that I saw a lot and participated in and was subject to is being a calibrating candidate. So I'm the first to the party. Oh, when you meet Kashana, you either love me or you don't. That's how people feel about me. It is. I'm I love you. <laughs> oh, listen, I love you too, Becky. <laughs> so you either love me or you don't. Right. And so I'm, I'm polarizing in that way. I understand that I've been that way since I was a kid. And so I will go into these executive searches. People will be super excited to place me. I would be the first or second candidate in and almost without exception, search teams would do some version of, God, Kashana is amazing. I wonder if we can do better. Calibrating candidates very rarely get hired. And so when you use candidates of color to calibrate your search, set that bar, that bar setter is never going to be as good as people who come into the search late. And so even if you're not using a search firm, but you have a search committee or you're a hiring manager or they're cycling through your team, we are constantly calibrating for who we think is going to be a good fit. And fit is just a container for the prejudices that we hold around who we think belongs. Oh, say that again. Yeah. So, so it's just a fit, cultural fit is just a container for the prejudices that we hold as we think about and we decide on who fits. Hey friends, taking a quick pause from today's episode to say that we just love to connect with you. And the best way to do so is to join the good community. It's free. Just head on over to weareforgood.com slash hello, and we can connect with all the resources, tips, tools, and show notes to help you do more for your mission. We can't wait to get to know you. Now let's get back to this awesome feel good conversation. My head just exploded, yeah. John. I and mean, then that's a very real topic that's not talked about. <laughs> you know, that's the box that's any reason you can put in that box that's not the right fit. Right. Not the right fit. Not the right fit. And so what I've had to learn to do over the years is ask, am I the first one to the party? And if a recruiter would tell me yes, I would say, call me back when the search is almost up. Because I know from experience that if I am the first round in that I am not getting that job. So I've had to teach other 
professionals of color to do the same. So in organizations, when I work with my clients and I go to different conferences and I do different workshops, and I'm gonna do a workshop in December for, to get folks for the new year on just how to do this well. When we think about how to hire our teams, folks give up their agency, particularly with my white counterparts. Well, I don't know, Kashana, where to go and what to do. If your friends on the weekend all look like you, the probability is you are gonna have a harder time getting folks who look like me in the door, full stop. <laughs> yep. So true. Sorry, not sorry. It's yeah, true. It's yeah. True. So when people ask that question, y'all, about, you know, well, how do we get more candidates of color? Well, how do you get more friends? Because it's all about not your first networking, so not that first concentric circle, but that second and that third. That's where our studies, the studies you keep reading about, like how to get the job, how to make sure that you are connected, et cetera. It typically is not from your first round, your first set of connections. It's typically second or third out. That's donors, that's board members, that's candidates, that's any person you want to bring into relationship and into community. And so if we're serious about being a having professionals of color at different levels of leadership within an organization we've got to be serious about how we build out that second and that third and then eventually that first circle of folks you're connected to i love the visual that you just created there because it makes it i can see that I and mean, i tend to be just a visual person and and i just love so much that you're unapologetically saying what needs to be said, because I have to tell you, in all the times that I have ever had to interview, you know, as a white woman, that has never crossed my mind about at what phase I need to go into and how I protect myself. And that makes me feel terrible, by the way, you know, that that people of color are having to make all of these slight adjustments. And I think, and that's one. And when you think about how many tiny adjustments have to be made anytime in your life, if you're someone of color, that can weigh you down. And so I, I can't even imagine like the heaviness of just carrying that around and not feeling like you have a chip on your shoulder to rise above that would take an extraordinary level again of resiliency. Oh, you're, you're giving me a face. Like you're going to tell, tell me something. No, go, go. But the back thing about this from a generational perspective, right? So I'm a Gen Xer. So depending on where in the Gen X flow you are, most of us came into our works, our workforce under boomers. Right. So that is play your position, play your position until we tell you that you can play something else. Stay in line, stay in line, <laughs> do your job. Right. And, and depending on how you came into the work, you do just that. It also doesn't give you space to turn and help others come in because you don't want to mess up because if you mess up, you mess it up for everybody. So then you don't give anybody a shot. We don't talk about that either. Right. And so when you are a person of color, and particularly if you are a black and brown professional, and I want to go one step further, who identifies every day as a person of color, because everybody does not. Um, then you are, to your point, Becky, carrying that additional weight. Now, my friends who are, are from the AAPI community will share with you that oftentimes, because most of my uh, South Asian and Southeast Asian friends are seen as model minorities, that folks check the box when they've hired somebody who's from Asian descent. They're like, well, good enough, diversity box filled. But depending on where you grew up in the world, you may have internalized white normative behavior. So culturally, you actually are not showing up as who you are. See how that culture came back mm -hmm. again. And so what ends up happening is that you have folks who are 
from a visual perspective, folks of color, potentially in positions of power, who don't advocate for other professionals because that internal stuff is wild. And so if you were to ask me this very same question before I left full-time work five years ago, I would not have had a good answer for you because let me tell you, Becky John, my answer was practiced. It was so delicious. It was good. I didn't even speak in broken English. <laughs> there, was no, there was no relaxed colloquialism in my tone. Only the good Queen's English hair, right? Because that's what I was taught would make me more acceptable. The first time I wore my natural hair to work, I was full of sweat by the time I got there. I, was, I mean, and it's true though, but it, this is a lived experience. So when you see younger professionals now who you might experience as bucking the trends, you might experience as um, not figuring out how to learn their environment before they want to get promoted or they want to do something different or strike out on their own, et cetera. They have been watching our foolishness for a very long time. Gen Xer, no, Gen, Gen Zers, millennials. Yep. Yep. This is an incredible space for you to tap into is what I'm sitting here thinking. And I know Julie's like the queen of young professionals. Uh, but it's like, this is something that I want to unlearn about myself, you know, as a Gen Xer as well. It's yep. like, you think you have, you have been bred, you have been positioned and poised to be a certain way in the office, in the world. And it, I would like to unlearn some of those things and unwind it a little bit. And that's why I think just, again, going back to that emotional intelligence of listening, oh. humbling yourself, learning, getting better, like looking at someone who's 24 and saying, you have something I don't have and I need to figure out how to get that. So excellent point. Well, I Absolutely. think it's a transition. I don't know how much you want to go into this, but the Rooted Collaborative that you created yeah. really, I feel like, speaks so directly into this about trying to connect incredible talent with uh, organizations that are looking for this type of talent, right? Could yep. you talk about that process Absolutely. of that coming into being and just kind of how you work to do that? Totally. So two things. I want to make sure I come back to why I left because um, you'd asked me that, oh. Becky, and I didn't answer that. But I, for the Rooted Collaborative. So a couple of years ago in 2018, I was on the road a lot. Um, I spent most of my time on the road as a speaker and trainer. And so I, people would ask me, where are you from? I'd be like, the Delta Terminal. You're Tom Hanks in the terminal. You live there. Yes. The food court people know me there. I mean, I got free stuff there. I just, I was there a lot. Are you grieving because of the travel um, slowdown? Just side question. Isn't it hard? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It is like, so and hard. I'm an introvert, but I like to travel. Yeah. And so I still got a rush of getting on a plane every time, mm -hmm. even though it was like a grueling schedule, but I loved it. So now I'm at home like, well, you know, I just, I can hear the planes go by outside. I just <laughs> wonder what it's like up there. Wonder what it's like. <laughs> Pack my bag again. Yeah. Um, so the Rooted Collaborative literally came to me on a plane. I always say that, and you know, for folks who are listening, who are faith folks, um, you'll understand this folks who are not, and you believe in other things, something comes to you, it's overtakes you. But the, for me, Jesus was like, hey, I need you to do this retreat for black fundraisers. Good night. And I was like, hey, God, I'm not ready for that. I'm busy. Bye. And then I went on to a keynote in Canada and I got hosted by um, some really amazing black female fundraisers there from the black Canadian fundraisers who were there. Um, there's a whole group of them there. Amazing group. And I just started talking about this idea and they were like, oh my God, you have to do it. 
So the collaborative actually started from the me wanting to just do a retreat. And I was like, well, where are we going to put all these people until this retreat comes? <laughs> I was like, I, well, I guess we should give them programming. Well, I guess I should. So that's how I started to do it. And it, the, the idea really was born because I said, I don't want other women who are coming into this sector to experience the level of loneliness and isolation. And sometimes it is self-imposed and sometimes it's real. Um, and not have an opportunity to grow in a safe and a brave space. And then for women who are thinking about leaving or who left like I did, leaving with this like feeling like, why did I do that with my time? And so how do we how do we bring all those different types of women? And because I was on the road globally, it wasn't, I couldn't stop with black women because when I would talk about it initially, that's what it was. And then women from other backgrounds would be like, hey, 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 girl, me too. Put me in the number. Can I be on the list? And so I had to make a decision about how inclusive I would be. So we are very intentional in our language. So you often hear me say black and brown women. You'll often hear me say black, indigenous and people of color. Um, I typically don't say women of color too tough. Um, I know that in different parts of the world who identifies as a woman of color is different. Um, and so we've made some intentional choices in our copy and in our language about what we are focused on and what we learned in our first two years was that women were not healthy. And that is a mental, a physical, emotional health that was translating to how they felt about raising money, how they felt about running programs, how they felt about running their organizations, about being partnered with other women. And so I could have focused on professional development, right? How do you get ahead? How do you raise money better? How do you do so-and-so? But what? We were dying. And you're seeing all this stuff with maternal health and you're seeing all this stuff about all types of wellness that are happening out in the world with women broadly and then with both black and brown women specifically and i thought well if we solve the body and we can focus on making your own paper we get your personal right your personal is your professional and so that's a huge differentiator between um the collaborative and other groups that have sprung up since then um, because we made a decision very early on to focus on the whole woman. Because oftentimes as women, and any woman can identify this, any person who identifies as a woman um, can identify this, or any person really, when you are not allowed to show up as your whole self in a space, when you have to shrink to fit into a box, whether that's in your marriage, whether that's in your family, at your job, you don't show up as your real and your whole self anywhere, then you start to wilt and to shrink and to become a caricature of yourself. And so allowing women space to start to just be like the little, we want to miss the miss the potato head action. Okay. We want to chia pet action and let it just grow. And so what you are starting to see as you watch us grow is us be responsive, not to what's happening outside of our community, but what our community is living and experiencing. And so we break new speakers. And so we teach women how to have a side hustle that makes sense. And so we teach women how to invest in their money because there's a perception that women in general don't invest well and some reality. And also that when you work in the nonprofit sector, you don't make any money. Um, we can make some money. And if you get your mind right and you get your body right and you get your paper right, and you get your relationships right, then by and large, the work that you do, that's your mission in action, will come alive no matter what seat you sit in. And that's the bet that we're hedging with the collaborative. Now y'all got to stay tuned and see if it really works because child, it's, it's, it's evolving, but it is so much fun. 
And it's so wonderful to see young professionals in particular and older professionals really step into roles to rediscover and to discover themselves. And so that is the work that we do. And our anchor is our retreat that we had in July, uh, Uprooted. And next year we're doing it again. And now it's evergreen. So we're super excited about that. Let me just tell you, folks. No, this is to you, actually, Kishana. That's going to be successful. I am here to tell you that will be successful because you don't know it, but you just describe Becky Endicott's life for like the last 15 years leading up until this moment. Like I was a little wilted flower. I mean, I've never (laughs) heard it explained that way. A shell of a human being, you know, before I could like Phoenix out of being put in that box. And yeah, it feels so freeing to find your true self, to find your voice, find who you are and come out of that. And it's, and it's, and it makes you feel powerful, you Mm. know, as a woman, and it makes you feel like you can take on anything. So I am thrilled that someone is taking this on in the sector. Um, I want to, I want you to speak directly to individuals that are in nonprofits right now that are listening to you and they're nodding to themselves and they're saying, I do subscribe to this kind of value system. I do uh, subscribe to this belief. What are some steps they can take today to recruit diverse development professionals and make, you know, this old style of hiring and um, team camaraderie? How can we make it a thing of the past? What are some tips you would give them right now? So the first thing is to really understand the working norms in your organization. And so your culture is an outgrowth of your policies, of your procedures, and of your working practices and norms. And oftentimes we get real busy. So we don't really get into the nitty gritty of how things work in our organizations. I need y'all to get what I say I was earlier, y'all, newsy, not (laughs) newsy, newsy, and understand your employee handbook, understand the unwritten curriculum that is happening in your organization. And if you are a white professional, believe that you actually have way more social capital than I ever have. Mm -hmm. And so start small. Here's how I like to do it. The next time you're in a meeting and someone says something that you know, you are, if if I could be like the rock and raise one eyebrow, oh God, I really wanted that. I want that too. I try. (laughs) It is. so bad, right? You're like, oh my God. (laughs) If you have an eyebrow raising moment, this is your opportunity to make a step forward, say something. Even if it's, excuse me, that is unacceptable. Excuse me, my word, depending on where you are in the world, you know, we different levels of pleasantries. <laughs> excuse me, oh, my mom does it all the time. She'll be like, oh, excuse, because it stops somebody short. If someone is cutting off one of your colleagues who's a professional of color, say, hi, hey, hi, my name's John. Kashana was talking. Kashana, please go ahead and finish and sit back in your chair across your, across your arm. We've all had, there you go. There we are, very powerful. Get into the mix and start using your social capital in those small ways. Cause let's what, guess what friends? A rock is heavy, but a jar full of pebbles is heavy too. Mm. And then as you think about the practices, I have four really specific things. Number one, you gotta know what you want before you go to market. So if 
an outcome is actually to have a professional of color on team, that is your outcome, which means you have to be relentless about your search, specific in the core competencies, the job responsibilities, what success looks like for a person in that role and what resources that you are willing to put on the table to ensure their success. That's before you put pen to paper and that's before you press, you press send on your LinkedIn upload. Then when you actually go out to market, remember you are marketing for professionals to join you and we are visual creatures. Just like we like cute Gerber babies, we go to your website and we look <laughs> at your people. And if it is as lily as the valley, you better have a darn good marketing paragraph that tells us why we should come on and join you. And you have to cast your net wide. Think Olympic swimming pool wide, not New York City backyard kiddie pool wide. And as you go up in the job process from screening to semifinals to work performance to finalists, every time you have a person of color drop out, you have to go back one level and do it again. If the goal is actually to truly start to diversify your team. And let's not conflate this nonsense where we just want to have the best. I hate to break it to you, but folk of color and particularly black women are the most degreed in the U.S. So the probability is I will out certify you, out degree you and spin you in circles. And if that is what you're afraid of, say that. So let's not make something that's a barrier. That's not a barrier, a barrier. The third thing you've got to do is you have got to have parity with the way you do reference checks. There's an article that was written in uh, what education magazine. It was like Ed Today, I think, um, a couple of years ago that talked about um, a woman who was a chief program officer who in her search found out after her search that she got asked for eight references. And the person who was the second finalist got asked for four. She ultimately got the job. But if I ever have a recruiter ask me for three or four references and then come back and ask for more, I pull out the search immediately. Immediately. I'm not here for it. I'm not, Cause I know you're not doing that for everybody. And so make sure that when you're checking for references, what you're checking for are ways that this person can develop. Because by the time you get to reference check, that means their credentials are right. That means that this fit that we search for is right. That means that you know they can do the job. Now you're trying to help them win because if they win, you win. So changing that perspective on references is the third thing. And then the fourth thing is have an onboarding plan that you did not wake up the morning they were going to start and go, oh, shoot, I guess I should put something together. <laughs> That's 99.9% <laughs> of organizations, for-profit and non-profit, I would say. Yes. When I teach folks how to do a proper onboarding, forget all these fancy tools and stuff. What does success looks like for them? And as a manager, part of the feather in your cap is when your people win. So if you do those four things with a clear lens on the outcome, the one I said you have that if you're deciding to start with that, you start with that. The probability is higher that you will at least hire more diverse professionals to your organization. On the other side of that 90 days, you've got to continue to have things in place for those folks to continue to win, to grow, to fail fast, to fail forward. And if you're not doing that on the lazy Susan, everybody gets an opportunity to get on the wheel, then you are doing that person a disservice and you're not helping them to persist. So, you know, I could go, I could go on all day, y'all. Let me I stop mean, right there. I but was just saying. 
She needs a pulpit is what she, she needs. She needs a pulpit and she needs to invoice all of us for this time because <laughs> that is invaluable feedback and so helpful because I think the hiring process is so difficult anyway. I mean, on being a hiring manager, trying to find the right candidate, but that is so helpful. And I think it's so true of starting with the goal. You always got to start with the goal and keep that true north. So thank you for that huge amount of feedback. Okay. I know you love this sector. Um, will you tell us a story that's really just touched you and stuck with you with philanthropy? Um, it could be happy, yeah. sad, somewhere in between, something that moved you and has stuck with you over the years. You know, for me, the thing that sticks with me over the years, believe it or not, are the people that I've had the privilege of managing. Mm. So early on, and probably at the point where I should have got out and done something else, um, <laughs> I realized that I wasn't as excited about raising money, but oh, I would get just ooh, excited when my team would come back with their wins. Mm. And so one of the things that I am so proud of in this sector are the number of folks who I have been able to manage over the course of my career who are still in the sector. I think all but like four, maybe. Wow. And I've managed well over 60 people. That's awesome. Um, across the six organizations I've been, I've been so fortunate to serve. And so 60, 70 people. And so that's like a super high number. I was counting in my mind um, of folks who are still in development, development communications, marketing related development work. And when they say that people leave their managers, they don't leave their jobs, even after I left the organization to be able to have put things in place so that folks can persist and can grow in other roles and to continue to move up to me is such a joy and a feather um, in my cap when I'm on a humble brag um, <laughs> that I really, really, really love. And so for me, that's something that's super huge. Um, the second thing that I will say that is recent, but is continuing to crop up is a continued attention on making sure that professionals of color have place and space to be able to flex their expertise, to be able to express their agency and to be able to find communities that they identify with so that they can stay in our profession so that we can do away with this nonsense notion that our professionals in our sector are less experienced or less qualified or less smart or that this job is easy. Hello, you ever heard that before y'all? I know you have. Oh yeah. Um, that for me, that does it for me, but more than any gift. And I've gotten a lot of really amazing transformative gifts, cool stuff from celebrities, that kind of stuff, but nothing does it for me. Like knowing that pe there are people in this profession that part in part or in whole, because they worked with and for me, um, they were able to find their way and find their path in this career and stay. Spoken like a true leadership expert, you know, that, <laughs> Who that loves her people. Yeah. You know? I can tell yeah. you love people and, and it like, you're such a vibrant personality and there is like joy radi radiating out of you. And it's, it's oh, really it. just a gift for you to come into our community and share that, you know, our, our final question that we ask everybody is what is your one good thing, a piece of advice, some counsel you might impart to our uh, community. What would be your one good thing, Kashana? Yeah. Get you some good counsel. Mm. Like we do not need an echo chamber of folks who agree with everything that we do and say, we really need a crew of folks who will hold us accountable, who will hold our hair, who will hold us up, who will keep the door open, who will kick us in the butt. And if you can think about your personal and professional mashup of your personal and professional advisory board 
and you do not have that mix, get out there and get it today. It is so critical to our growth. It is critical to the health and vitality of our profession that we continue to have the diversified mix of mentors, of sponsors, of peers, um, of folks who look up to us because that's what keeps us sharp and on our toes and really focused on accelerating and activating our missions. Okay, that's amazing advice. And it sharpens us at the end of it. I mean, if you're somebody who just wants to be told what you want to hear, how are you ever going to grow? How is the world ever going to improve around us? And again, humility. It all comes back to humility. Yeah, being willing to hear it. Okay, Kishana, you've got a fan club. They're already pinging our phone lines if we're a live show. They're calling in. (laughs) How do I get connected? Hello, caller. Yeah, can we take calls? We've got someone from Dearborn, Michigan on the call. Let's schedule that and please do that. (laughs) That would be so awesome. Oh, my God. So we'd love to connect people to you, though. So what is the best way to find you online? What social medias do you like to hang out at, et cetera? Absolutely. So you can follow me on all social media at Fund Diva, F-U-N-D-D-I-V-A. I was very smart about that in 2009. <laughs> <laughs> so Fund Diva, and I would love for y'all to join the Fab Crew, which is my mailing list. And you can do that by just going to bit.ly forward slash Kish Crew, K-I-S-H-C-R-E-W. I'm Love going it. there right it's after It's on the this. show notes, folks, mm-hmm. so go hit that Go up. find it. And Kishana... You're my new best friend from New York City. You're straight talker, straight shooter. You're straight lover. I, I feel love, and I love this challenge you've put out to us, and I love that you keep calling it nonsense. Let's put the nonsense aside, people. Let's evolve. Let's be kind humans. Let's be inclusive, and let's kind of look around our world and see what ha- what do we need to do to improve it and make life just a little bit better for everybody else. Thanks for inspiring Absolutely. us today. You're awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. Y'all are awesome. <laughs> it's been a blast. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you love this conversation with Kishana and that it inspires you to conduct an inventory of your organization to ensure you're recruiting diverse professionals. Did you know every week we share our best roundup of content, freebies, and notes? Head over to weareforgood.com backslash hello to join our mailing list, and you'll hear from us weekly with resources and tips to help you do more for your mission. If you love what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? Your support really helps more people find us and join the good community. Our production hero is the light of David and Debbie's life, Julie Confer. Hi, Mom and Dad. Our theme song is Sunray by Remy Boersboom. Go rock this week, do-gooders. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.